You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast with me, your host, Kino McGregor. I created this series to keep you inspired to get on the mat every day so that you can practice yoga and change your world, starting from the inside out, one breath at a time. Thanks so much for listening. Your support means everything to me. Hi, everyone. It's Kino here. I am going to be doing a talk with Susana Barkataki, who I've just invited, and we're going to be talking about her yoga and culture festival. Hi, Susana. Thank you so much for signing on to this IG Live. Nice. So good to be here with you. You too. And I am really excited to have this conversation with everyone and excited to be here with you. So thank you so much for for chatting with me. It's been a while since we've connected and you have something really, really awesome that's coming up, which is this yoga and culture festival. So can we just jump in there and just like tell everyone what is this yoga culture festival and why did you create it? When is it? And what's the like, what is it? Yes, I was so excited for it. So I was at a puja at my family's. I moved to LA, so I'm close to my family now for Diwali. And I was like feeling so inspired by the connection and by the community. And I thought, you know what? I want to share this with the global community and uplift so many more voices that are from the culture around yoga and around this festival of Holi and celebration. So Holi is a festival of color. It's celebrated all over India by many, many people, Hindus, Jains, Sikhs, Buddhists, you know, it doesn't matter what culture you are. It's a festival of connection and a festival of celebration for spring. And it also has a lot of deeper layers of meaning. Means, you know, there's a lot of shedding and clearing out of the old, bringing refreshment and renewal for a new time. And so I wanted to bring in different voices that are from the culture to ask, well, how do you connect to either the playful and light aspects of holy, or how do you do the deeper ritualistic um, spiritual aspects of holy? And will you share them with the global yoga community and wellness community? And so many, many different teachers said yes, and they you'll get to hear from them starting on Friday, which is actually when holy begins. On Friday, there's interviews that come out every day for a whole week with, you know, there's some DJs, there's some musicians, there's lineage teachers, um, like Indu Aurora and Acharya Shunya and Rishi Chidananda. And then um, there's also people that maybe nobody has heard of or, or, you know, people who are doing really meaningful and powerful work that are, that doesn't always get recognized or noticed, but is so much in integrity. So there's a huge variety of, of teachers to learn from. And you can tune into it by um, signing up at yogaculturefest.com. And is there, uh, you know, is there a donation? Is there, you know, what, what can people expect when they sign on? Are there different tiers where they can support the event in different ways? That's so cool that you asked that, right? It's free. Um, I wanted to make it totally free because 
you know, as a, as an offering and as a gift to, to the world. And uh, so right now there's, there's nowhere, you know, to donate or anything. Um, if folks do feel motivated or inspired, I mean, you could donate to, to me and we'll take some percentage of that and send it to causes, particularly for women's rights in, in India and, and deep, more education in India. I think um, it's, so important for people that may be joining to find a way that they can, you know, give back and in some way, uh, whether it's to support your message and your work or to support some of that charitable work that's out there. So when people are coming and benefiting from the cultural immersion experience of all of these different teachers contributing, uh, you know, another really easy way to give back to any of the teachers that may be, maybe they're in the festival is just to follow them on social media and mm-hmm. to, you know, tune into their work. That's a really good way to just, you know, be present in someone's experience. So w- one of the things that I remember from being in India at the time of Holi is that people referred to it as like the festival of colors. Yeah. So this is the time where if you're not of Indian descent and you find yourself in India uh, during the time of Holi, you'll see, <laughs> you know, like painted cows and you'll see these colors that appear where you'll normally see them just at the spice market in the beautiful, um, you know, uh, sort of pots where all of this, the powdered color is then suddenly Holi and then the color is everywhere. And at first you might just think, gosh, it's just fun, almost like, you know, New Year's Eve or something. But if you dig deeper into it, when we understand that um, that it's not just Festival of Colors, that there's an aspect of love, an aspect of forgiveness, an aspect of renewal, then it can get really, really powerful. So where does the word, like, where does holy come from in terms of its lineage within the larger uh, Hindu structure? Yeah, you know, I... I believe that there's been festivals like Holi all through time, like even thousands of years ago when there was a celebration of of the spring and the coming back of the harvest. I know Holi more as a modern modern thing, which is in Assam where my family's from, we celebrate Bihu. So we do a lot of dancing. Um, There's, you feed your neighbors, you all bring out food. And it's a time when, you know, even in India, my family lived there, my parents, uh, my father and my aunts and things after the caste system was abolished, but there's still caste divisions. And those are, um, kind of enacted in social norms, kind of the way racism exists in the West, right? It's like, it's it's illegal and yet it still happens or sexism too. And yet holy is a day when all those divisions are set aside. And you, you know, even if you have an argument with your neighbor, you go and you play with them or you feed them. And so it's become this time of, like you said, like forgiveness, letting go. The stories in the tradition are about the triumph of good over evil or the triumph of, of selflessness over selfishness. There is an evil king who wanted to have everyone worship him. And if you didn't worship him, he would, you know, cast you out or send you away. And there was a little boy, um, Prahlad, who said, I'm not going to worship you. You know, you're not, you're not good. Like he just had that purity that, that children have of, where they tell you the truth, like that wasn't nice or that's, you know, and so, um, and the king tried to to burn this little boy by have him sitting on the, have him sit on the lap of a demon sister of his named Holika. And because he was so good, he didn't 
catch on fire, she disintegrated. She, you know, so the power of good to triumph over evil. This is one of the many stories that exists in the tradition. And so holy is a time of turning to, to, I think of that story as a metaphor of what are the parts of me that are like the the king, that just want everyone to be like me, 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 (laughs) right? And then what are the parts of me that are like the sister that are, you know, so consumed with anger or suffering that I think that anger is going to burn others, but really it's just hurting myself. And what are the parts of me that are like the little boy that are just true and connecting and wanting the best and wanting the truth of a great leader in others or even in myself, because he was a great leader by, by his actions. And so taking the time to reflect on these deeper layers is a big part of what holy is or can be for us in the West too, because whether or not, you know, you don't have to be Hindu to find power in the spiritual lore or in the stories or in, you know, celebrating holy. There's the, you know, there, there are many similar stories across many faiths that have the idea of uh, a pure being being subjected to fire. And then Mm -hmm. that being in its purity doesn't get harmed by the fire. So this is almost mm. a, a, a sort of sociocultural myth that carries through across multiple religions. And I love the idea of encouraging people to read the stories and mm. then instead of thinking of otherness, to think of how this relates in terms of metaphor and in terms of life lessons, psychology to where wherever you are in you know, your station in life and to learn from the, the, the wisdom of this ancient festival. Mm. Um, So, you know, um, in regards to the timing, there's a particular time we're we're looking at. It's kind of the end of winter and the beginning of spring, which is the the, the sort of time of rebirth, the time of renewal. So it's a good time to, you know, make those forgivenesses and to celebrate that birth of what what might potentially be new. Mm -hmm. So in regards to... um, people that might not be familiar with Indian culture um, and the tradition of holy, um, the the idea of letting letting go of the old, celebrating the new, taking on this question of um, which aspects uh, can I look at in these these mythological figures that are presented in holy, how does someone that's not of Indian descent kind of navigate the space of learning from the origin culture while respecting the origin culture. So rather than say, just uh, speaking casually about something that they might not have depth in and end up, um, you know, doing a disservice to it. So how does someone that's not of Indian descent kind of navigate all of it, especially if it's the first time they're interacting with the Holy Festival? Yeah. I love this question. The best way I can say is like, one, go to the, the local temple where you are, you know, because there's likely going to be holy events, especially for children. Um, there'll often be people playing holy who know how to play and understand, you know, the, the context and the culture. So connect. And maybe you have a community, Indian community where you are. Um, go and connect with them if they're playing holy and, and ask and support and listen and learn. And I do want to say, because I saw someone say like, in India, right? It can be that we are not a monolith. India is so diverse. There's so many different religions, so many different languages, so many different regions. My experience may be completely different than another Indian person's experience. 
And so I just want to say also, like, it's not all going to be the same and, and that's okay as well, but coming into cultural connection with, I think a little bit of humility and a little bit of like, how can I learn? How can I support? And how can I be here with openness and and curiosity? And then, you know, if you want to do things online, usually again, there'll be festivals that are celebrated online that you you can check out. But I, I would highly suggest going to a local community if, if you have one and, and connecting with, with people there. Um, often schools will be doing events for Holy as well. Um, so parents can can connect with other parents who might, you know, be South Asian who are celebrating Holy or or want to with their children. Um, and for that, if you're doing it with young people, what I often do is take flour and mix it with holy color to kind of diffuse the, the intensity of the color. Or if it's really young children, I'll actually make it with turmeric and um, other like natural, like crushed neem leaves. So it's it's more natural. The holy color that you get that you can buy online or also at your local Indian store. If you go, you know, live in a community where you have say in India sweets and spices or stores like that, then you can get holy color, but you can, you can kind of um, cut it with flowers. So it's a little bit less intense. And then the other thing you need to know is you wear all white traditionally, but wear white clothes you don't mind getting stained because they're going to get all covered um, in color. In in regards to color, what's the origin of the color story? You know, what does yoga, yeah. Ayurveda, traditional Indian culture yeah. how, say about color and how do, how, do, how do color and throwing of color come to be equated with the lesson and the, the teaching of Holi? Yeah, so the amazing part is, I believe originally practitioners would dip their hands in the ash from the fire that was burned to symbolize that burning away of impurities. And they would decorate each other and themselves with ash. And because ash, it's, you know, you'll see sadhus wear ash all all over themselves, but it's not very festive. It's kind of more, it's got a more somber feeling. They sometime, I believe in the last couple hundred years, switched to using natural food colors. So the first holy practitioners would have used, you know, made their own colors and not have synthetic color. And as that way of, you know, all over the world in springtime, wherever we are, there's more like the flowers are budding, the, you know, trees are, the leaves are are sprouting. We just see so many ways that color emerges. And so I think it was just a natural extension. I, I will say when you look at Ayurveda, which is the sibling science of yoga, and there's this connection to the cycles of nature, to connecting with the sun, with the wind, with the you know air, with the earth. I believe yogic practitioners were often looking for ways to bring that harmony, not just around us in the world, but actually inside us. And so adorning ourselves with the color of the actual season is a way of creating that you know, inner outer harmony of balance and light. Mm. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. I actually did not know that the origin of the the the, the sort of the, the, the you know the color display was the covering of ash. Yeah. And I think that that's really that, that that's an amazing that 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 really contextualizes everything within the larger kind of framework of yoga as the mm-hmm. path of purification, the ash symbolizing, you know, the the burned up obstacles or those burned up things that we want to let go of. I love that. Mm-hmm. Um so 
In terms of, and I know you already mentioned your ancestral lineage, how you, uh, how you, how you experience holy in India, but how do you experience holy uh, and bring in your ancestral lineage in terms of how you show up in the world today, where you are outside of India? Yeah. Yeah, I have experienced it in India. I was in Bihar and um, and I've also experienced it with my family in Assam, but in Bihar, it was really intense. So I did want to bring this up of like, it also, there's complexity with holy, you know, and there's, there's issues of consent and setting boundaries and making sure that you feel bodily autonomy. And it's not always safe and it hasn't always for me felt safe. And so I just want to mention that to say, wherever you're playing, make sure that you're respecting other people's boundaries and that you have set boundaries for yourself. So, so you can feel safe because it, it's hard to play when you don't feel safe. Right. So, um, so I bring that up because it is really important. It raises that issue every year, I believe, especially, you know, in, in India, but here too. So I have a a kiddo, I have a nine-year-old and I also am a teacher. And so for all these years, even before I had a child of my own, I would try to bring in, you know, how we celebrate different things in school. Um, I'd bring in holy as a celebration. So the children that I was teaching could start to learn about Indian culture and we'd make our own powder. I would explain, you know, what holy is, give them little bowls of natural color. And, um, and then I would usually bring a boom box. Do you remember boom boxes, Keto? <laughs> Anyone listening who's old enough to remember, I bring a boom box, um, and turn it on. And when, you know, explain the rules, like, okay, we can put color on from the, from the chest down, um, no throwing it in people's eyes, if anyone doesn't want to play, come to this side and we'd play the music and then everyone would dance and play and throw color. They had such a good time. Every single time I did this with young people, you know, from five, age five to 15. Um, and then later I would get together with my family or friends, you know, or, or different communities, temple community, and also play holy there. It's pretty much the same thing, a little bit more wild when you're playing with adults. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so now like this year, I plan to do that with my kiddo and, and some friends um, because to me, it's an important way of continuing the tradition and having that time of calm where we're maybe reading a story or connecting to spiritual lore where the kids get to understand there's more to this than just fun and then also have a lot of fun. Mm, I love that. Uh, I think that's, that's the sound sounds really fun. And it, and, and I really connect in with, with the idea of, Hey, you need, you need some potential boundaries and yeah. some ideas of safe space. It sounds like you experienced something that maybe wasn't the kind of safe space that you wanted to create. And I, I, I feel like I could definitely identify yeah. that of having the idea of maybe you're wearing clothes that you don't really want to get covered in the, you know, the color, and then someone starts just throwing it on you and you weren't really weren't prepared or it's in your hair and it colors your hair or something like that. And then suddenly you'd feel like, well, Hey, my space was there. Um, and especially if you don't know what's going on, you know, so Mm. someone, for example, takes someone that doesn't even know what holy is. And then, then their first interaction is just someone threw color on them and they're like, this is never coming off my favorite sweatshirt. So if, 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 is there anything, um, that again, you could give just a guideline for someone that might want to try and also some things just kind of like not to do some things to like watch out for in regards to respecting people within the play of holy. 
Yeah, I think it's really important to whoever you're playing with to have a time where you're coming together to set what the the parameters are and to say, here's what we're okay with. Here's how we, you know, signify stop or enough, or this is the area where you go, where you don't want to play anymore. That's really, really important. And to check in with yourself. It's, it's tricky. I will say in India where it is like, there's this kind of revel, revelry and like throwing off of normalcy and throwing off of social norms that is really, I think as humans, we need those times to like go a little bit, you know, in Greek mythology, I want to say every, every system has this, you have Dionysus, right? You have the like creative, you know, out of control, drunk on life or whatever substances, like complete wildness. And, and I think we do need those times, but it has to be in a container of safety. And so making sure that you set that first. And then if you are feeling uncomfortable moving away or getting out of the situation, and then also taking care of one another. So if you can tell that someone that you're with is feeling unsafe or feeling, um, or just doesn't look happy, then you can say no. Like, for example, for me, I really don't like getting wet and cold. And another part we haven't talked about is sometimes people use, this is again, a more modern interpretation, but they make colored water and they use spray guns, like, um, to spray you with water. And I really don't like that makes me feel really clammy and gross. And so I'm fine with powdered color, but I don't ever want to be shot with the the water guns. And so that's just like a boundary. And I won't, when we're doing that, I won't go in and do that, you know, with, with people, but I have to like check in with myself and do that and make sure that people I'm with um, also respect it. I think I saw someone asked a question of like, where do you, Children's books, one, um, there's a really great one. It's in my kiddos room. I could go grab it, but I think it's just called Holy, the Festival of Color. Um, There's the Ama Tell Me books, um, which are wonderful books about different stories from the, you know, Hindu and Vedic traditions. And then, um, and then someone else asked, where can you find a place to play where you are? I would, Check in with your local temples, your local Indian store probably will have flyers for where events are, are happening. Um, and if you don't have those where you live, then maybe checking online, you know, and, and just looking up like Indian Cultural Center. There are more uh, local temples than we think if we start yes. taking a look for them, you know, um, it may be a little bit of a drive uh, into a different area of town and uh, you know, then that's that's wonderful. You know, then you can explore different places. The the one of the biggest Hindu temples in South Florida is about an hour north of us here mm-hmm. in a really nice area in Florida, and uh, it, it, we 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 have some connection in with the, the priest there. We've had them come over and perform some pujas in our space. Mm-hmm. I don't think we would open our space up for holy because of the white <laughs> floors, but, <laughs> but you but could I, do it on the beach, you know, beach, like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Beach, like do it out in park. nature park. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's where we'll do it. Um, mm-hmm. We'll go get color from the Indian store, cut it with flour. We'll get flour and, <laughs> and then, and then play um, probably in a park close to here. So holy sounds extremely fun. And, you know, it's presented as this ritual and this party that happens, this play that happens sometimes through the night to symbolize that journey. And uh, in this way, as you mentioned, it's kind of, it has that element of letting go and 
at the same time, there are there is a big need in the world right now to remain really grounded. So what are some practices that you currently engage in and, and teach and recommend others to really stay grounded amidst these challenging times? Yeah. I mean, really, it's turning back to sadhana, which is, I know, something you practice constantly and, and all the time. And so for me, it's often it's asana, practicing asana, pranayama, um, so physical practice of yoga, breath and um, dharana, like focusing practices. I do a lot of candle gazing, a lot of um, focusing my, you know, all my senses in on a particular, a particular um, object. And for me, I often choose a candle because I also have eye issues. So it's a kriya, a way of cleansing my eyes as well as focusing my mind. And then dhyana meditation. Those practices, I feel like there's no substitute for coming back to just sitting on the mat, practicing, um, maybe chanting mantra, whatever it is that connects you to, uh, for me, it's like that part of myself. It's like, ah, Oh, I'm here. I'm back. And then I can deal with all the challenges. You know, there's been so much, there is so much going on in the world and even the things like holy, for example, or, or anything that, is joyful. There's also parts to the things in our lives that are complex and that it bring to light inequity. Um, because even as we're breaking down boundaries on one day, those boundaries are there all the other times of the year, right? So there's work to be done to create more peace outside of us and inside of us. And for me, it has to start with my inner, my inner practices, my inner peace practices. Um, also, I journal a lot. Those are things I do. How about you? What are you doing? Mm. No, I mean, again, my sadhana for me is extremely important. I have a, mm-hmm. I have a, you know, a, a pretty, a pretty well-grounded meditation practice. So mm-hmm. I sit for an hour first thing in the morning and I sit again last thing in the evening. Mm-hmm. And then, and then I take some asana practice and, and then some other contemplative practices that, that come up. But uh, without sadhana, I mean, I wouldn't be where I am today. I feel like I'm, I'm talking to you now because I've been practicing for more than 20 years, meditation and yoga, and I've been on the path. And, and then in one of the, one of the things that I think is very, is very difficult is this balance between how much inward do you go and how much outward do you go, mm-hmm. you know, like how much turning inward into working on your own stuff, because we need those periods and then how much turning outward and engaging with the world do, do we do? And if, if I feel like if we get there are individuals who are going to be on that path of renunciation that are really only going to look inward and that's their path. But if we're householders, we're constantly balancing. So sometimes, sometimes I notice if we get too much externally oriented, whether it's even just reading the news too much or getting concerned about, you know, social issues that we're really passionate about and we get too much outward focus that, that we can lose that inner seat of sadness. We need to take too much inward. And then if we're too much inward, then we stay too much inward and then we don't give outward. So for me, that, that balance is there and knowing when I need to disengage and come back within is mm. very, 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 very important for me. Anyways, so that's, that's, that's my thing. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Susanna, in terms of um, rituals of renewal, uh, and we talked about our sadhana, but is there is there a ritual of renewal? Um, you give a lot as a teacher. You show up mm-hmm. in the online space and hold space for very difficult conversations at the intersection of yoga and cultural appropriation, and are a really strong voice in the in in the yoga world about 
staying true to the origin culture of yoga. And I really thank you and commend you and respect your work and that, and that plane a lot. And I know how draining that can be and taxing and how much emotional labor you have to show up with. So are there any rituals of renewal that you engage in to kind of connect back in with your source after you give so much to the world? I do. Yeah. I love this question. I do a lot of work with energy, with the the elements and connecting literally to the earth and bringing earth energy up into me. Uh, And then also the sun or the moon, depending on what kind of qualities I'm cultivating. And that helps a lot just to clear out, you know, whatever, like I literally will wipe my hands in front of my body after I sometimes do public stuff and I'll be like, okay, letting, giving that energy back, pulling my own energy back. So a lot of tools that I've learned from, from my teachers to connect to an energy source that's far greater than just my, you know, what's contained in my own body, because that's part of the the inner power that yoga gives us. I found is attunement to a source of power that's actually infinite. And so when I do that, it just kind of naturally renews me. I also do a lot of play. I have a nine-year-old, you know, so we'll go jump on on the trampoline together or have like tickle, you know, fights or whatever it is, go into imaginary worlds. And that's really, really recharging. Just being present with the people that I love and who love me and who I'm here to care for. In a way, it's almost like that, because obviously parenting is work, but that that time of connection is a break from the other work, right? So I just fall deeply into that and let it nourish me and then let my other work nourish me and kind of fill me up to go back to be a wonderful parent. So it's kind of like pulling energy from, from different places. Nice. I love that. I think that's mm-hmm. really, really a very good testament to um, to balance. Um, yeah. So in terms of um, yourself as a storyteller and telling the stories of um, of the culture of India, as you so eloquently and beautifully do, thinking of yourself, um, you know, as a, as a mom with a child mm-hmm. who maybe will grow up one day and you see the future of your, you know, you see the, you see the future of your, of your young one. And then to think about generations to come, mm-hmm. you know, what, what do you what do you think of when you think of the like this sort of unique intersection where you're at the stories that you're telling today how that will impact those who are still yet to come hmm. i think about this all the time because we're future ancestors and the way that we live and practice and teach particularly yoga but really is what i think about but any wisdom tradition that's what the future is going to receive. And so it's both a real gift, but also a big responsibility, I feel like, to do my best to share the real, like, deep, authentic experience that I have and the fullness of yoga practice. And so for me, what that looks like is sharing yoga, you know, asana for sure. It's a huge part of my life and my practice, but also yoga philosophy and yoga ethics, because yoga is a whole system of ethics that we forget about. You know, there's this really rich complexity. Um, It's a, you know, it's also important, I think, to remember that there's not just one unbroken lineage of yoga. There's been so many different lineages, even thousands of years ago, there were arguments about how to best achieve liberation or moksha. Like some people thought you do it this way. Other people thought you do it that way. Where the renunciate path, you know, the moderate path, the extreme, there's, 
there's never been consensus, but there was an agreement to a hearty and passionate debate and conversation. And I think we forget that today and get a little bit stuck in thinking my way is the only way, you know, or this way is right and the other ways are wrong. And, and that can be okay for a time, but there's so much richness when we open up or I found when I open up to the humility of like, I'm so passionate, like I'm a Yana yogi. I'm, I'm very into study and discussion and ideas. And, and yet a bhakti yogi, a yogi of devotion, a practitioner of devotion has a just as equally beautiful path. And so the big things for me are sharing the fullness to the best of my ability of what yoga is, and then also respecting different paths and not, you know, putting them down or um, kind of opening space as much as possible for a diversity of experience. I really love that. And I think that this is a really wonderful lesson for our contemporary age when Mm. that rigidity around this is the way it should be done um, applies to people's preconceptions about yoga, but also people's preconceptions about so many different things. So that, Mm -hmm. you know, we're often given, like, let's, we could take asana as an example, you know, there's that someone says, this is how you do trikonasana. So then they're suddenly Mm -hmm. going around like trikonasana police and anybody that doesn't do it exactly like that kind of gets called out and says, you're doing it wrong and that sort of thing. And it's kind of humorous when you think about the triangle pose, but then that same paradigm of thinking that gets applied to speech you know, gets applied to how you show up in the world. Oh, you said, you, 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 here's this, you have to use this diction and syntax. And if you don't, then you're canceled, you're wrong. Mm. And, you know, the extremes of, uh, the extremes of any sort of thought forms kind of, kind of go there. And at the same time, when we're talking about yoga as a path, it isn't just a free for all. It isn't just right. anything goes. So it's kind of hard to navigate that space of, how do we do honor to the tradition so that, as you said, we're a good ancestor um, to the lineages of, of practitioners that will come years, thousands of years after us. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, not get ourselves into the box of a corner of do it this way, or you're, you're not a real quote unquote, real yogi mm-hmm. or something like that. So it's very difficult, you know, very, very it difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the way that I've tried to navigate that is to put myself in, in the tutelage, like in the study of esteemed teachers. Mm. I I think that's one of the best ways to, and and those teachers, I really do look to, you know, and be discerning when I choose my teachers, like, are they, are they telling me to only follow them? Right. And they're the only authority and I need to give up my, my own, you know, kind of critical thinking, or are they saying, try this, see how it feels, notice how it is for you, right? And and there's tension there too, because traditionally, actually, you would give up your own authority. But I think for our modern, you know, in the West today, uh, a lot of the teachers that I notice that are really wonderful teachers are asking you to be um, critical thinkers while also giving you the, the richness and the depth of the teachings. But so it is a, I think it's a, it's a major tension what you bring up. It's like, how can we respect the, the tradition and then also, um, also not put ourselves or others into boxes? Totally. I think, and this is that, this is a, a question. It's, it's something that's very contemporary. You could say that we're mm-hmm. talking about this because 
you know, uh, that traditional guru shisha relationship is built on the surrender of the student, you know? And so mm-hmm. at the same time, there are so many yoga teachers out there and mm, that are not gurus, right? So it is right. not, this is not a guru shisha relationship when you enter mm-hmm. into, you know, a drop in yoga class. This is like, this is more like a, a, a collaboration of peers or a relationship mm-hmm. of maybe someone's a little further along the path. Maybe they know the way, but to suddenly, you know, walk into any yoga class and treat that individual as a guru is um, a little bit, uh, you know, um, I mean, I can't think of a, a, a friendly word to, to, it is a little bit misguided, you know? Yes. And yeah. I think yoga teachers too, we have the responsibility to say that to our mm-hmm. students. I'm not a guru, you know, I'm not. Yeah. And, and it's important, I think, in that way to, um, to, support people in thinking for themselves and, mm-hmm. you know, got, getting guidance from, from teachers who they can trust and respect. And, and I look for teachers who are practicing with integrity. You know, that's mainly what I look for is, is mm-hmm. do they feel aligned? Are their words and their actions aligned? Are they practicing the yamas and the yamas? You know, we can start to tell those things. And I've asked, you know, I'll ask my parents, if you have a relationship with your parents or people you trust, you know, I've said to them as I went into practice with, with one of my main teachers, Shankarji, like, can you observe me and notice if I'm acting in a way that feels cult-like or, you know, if this feels like it's actually supportive and they did, you know, they came to talks and um, listened to talks and said, Oh yeah, yeah, this, I think you're on a good path. Like, I think you're going to be okay. You know, so asking for support as you find your paths and your teachers um, checking in with people who know you and love you can be really helpful. And then keeping those bridges open, right? So yeah. if the if suddenly because you're in this because you're in some other community, then it's asking you to cut the ties with mm. um, family members or friends who who have really supported you, who could be a really clear mirror in that case. I, I remember when I first started practicing yoga, and I and I said that I wanted to go to India. Um, mm. I was so nervous about what my parents were going to say because you know, it was 20 years ago. It wasn't really easy. You couldn't, there was no FaceTime. There was no video mm-hmm. call. They didn't know, you know, if I could even call or if there was going to be a place to send an email or what just nobody knew, mm-hmm. like they didn't know. So I was ready for them to be really, really concerned because they were concerned when I moved to New York city. So mm-hmm. I just like, it was a big thing that I wanted to move to New York city. So I just yeah. felt like I was bracing myself for, okay, I'm going to tell them I'm going to India for two months. So here we go. And then the, mm-hmm. they immediately said to me, we can see how good this yoga is that you're practicing. Mm-hmm. So of course we want you to continue to, to do this. So it's like mm-hmm. that, that immediate feedback of this is a good path. This yeah. is a good path. This is a good path. And I think, I think, you know, um, like the event that you're doing this, the, the, the yoga culture festival is a really important way for people to connect into that bigger perspective of, mm-hmm. um, uh, of, of the culture rather than on this one individual, which can create this kind of, you know, almost this, this, putting this individual on a pedestal of purity or, uh, and then looking at them in a vacuum, but, but really t- tapping into resources, like what you're providing in this yoga, yoga culture festival mm-hmm. is also another really important check on what can be kind of tunnel vision and, and the, the natural affinity that we feel towards, towards our teachers. So mm-hmm. I would encourage everyone to join that. Um, for anyone that's joined uh, lately, would you share with everyone uh, where they can find you and where they can find the Yoga Culture Festival? 
Yes, you can find the Yoga Culture Festival at yogaculturefest.com. It's asked for email because the festival will be delivered via email. We wanted to have some way of like giving you, um, you know, each day there's a loving email that I've written that tells you about the teacher that you'll be hearing from and asks you some questions for reflection and kind of helps you go deeper. So you're not just attending the festival, but you're also like bringing it into your, into your life. So you can go to yogaculturefest.com to sign up. And also that's in my link in bio, which is my name. So Susanna barkataki.com. And I offer lots of uh, fun and provocative yoga education <laughs> there on, on my Instagram. I really enjoy, I think of it a little bit as like edutainment and, um, and instigation, I like getting people to think, you know, and think about what it is we're doing, how we're doing it. Are we really touching on the full expanse of what's available to us in yoga? I think not in general in yoga in the West. Um, there's always so much more we can learn. And so, um, so I'd be really excited to connect with folks. We'll be all through the festival. We'll be chatting about it on my page too. So you can share your insights and you'll get to learn from some amazing teachers. They're all South Asian teachers um, from many different experiences. That's the other thing I wanted to bring in is folks who are, you know, from different teaching lineages, folks who are queer, folks who are trans, you know, just different experiences of what it is to practice yoga today and to share it with the world with their unique flavor. Susanna, I love the way that you inspire people to uh, dive into potentially provocative questions. Mm -hmm. uh, would you, would you, was there something in recently that you've shared that created uh, kind of uh, a very a, a very lively conversation that you mm -hmm. could share with everyone who's tuning in now just so they can get a sense of the type of uh, conversation that you hold space for. Mm. Yeah, I think recently I asked something like, is it possible to, like, how would you have a decolonized yoga retreat? What would that look like? And what would that be like? And so when, so when you ask questions like that, you know, there's people have all sorts of opinions on what it means to practice yoga in a retreat setting in a way that, you know, is more in alignment, say with the land or say with work, like fairness for workers or people who are providing food. Um, then there's people with opinions on what kind of teachings or what teachers should be there, right? So it's just like a big kind of conversation that, that ends up being um, most of the time in my space, really productive. Of course, sometimes there's people who come in and attack, you know, one perspective or another, but generally there's a lot of really great ideas. I think, you know, I'll ask questions like, how do you start or end your yoga asana class? Again, and why? Like, do you use namaste and why? Um, do you chant? Do you use Sanskrit and why in your teaching? So, really going about it with an air of curiosity and having a conversation, not making anyone wrong. Certainly I might have opinions or ideas, but I don't, um, I don't try to make the, anyone wrong for what they think, but more like we're all working together because my aim is not that people agree with me, right? My aim is actually that we all are moving together to deepen our understanding of yoga and the way that we practice and teach yoga, especially in the West. You know, I think um, there's a lot, 
a lot that's missing here because of just how little has gotten translated or brought over. I mean, there's many of us trying to do this work, but it doesn't always happen. And so there's a lot of room for deeper learning and conversation. Well, I love that. And I hope everyone who's joining is inspired to uh, tap into some of those deeper conversations that you hold space for and approach it from an attitude that's non-dichotomous, as you said, so that that's truly holding space for people's journeys, especially mm-hmm. those who maybe have, the, you know, like the first time interacting with some of those concepts and really just might not have a clue. Mm-hmm. So to, to really hold the space for everyone's journey, I think is really, really beautiful. So Susanna, is there anything else you'd like to add before we, uh, before we kind of wrap up our lovely conversation for today? It's been so great talking to you, Kino. I just really appreciate you and, and your support and OMSTAR's support of Yoga Culture Festival. It's um, a real joy to get to be doing this work with you and with the community. So thank you. And I look forward to celebrating and exploring all these rich conversations, you know, in the Yoga Culture Festival with, with all of us who, if you choose to join. Yeah. Thank you so much, Susana, for, for, for joining me for this talk. It's always inspiring to share space with you and check in with uh, everything that you're doing. And I, uh, I again, really, really uh, respect and honor the work that you're doing. So thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS, and that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.